Hello and welcome to We've Got History Between Us. This podcast is brought to you by VOICE, Volunteers in Collections Engagement. VOICE is a volunteer-led initiative from a team of seven volunteers at the Centre for Research Collections at the University of Edinburgh, and the CRC has got history. Over the coming months, We've Got History will be exploring the different aspects of collections, archives and beyond to the wider museum circuit and heritage sector. We're hoping to bring you interviews, discussion panels, we'll be delving into exhibitions, artefacts and new acquisitions. We'll also shine a light on the different types of volunteering going on at the CRC, so soon we hope you get to meet the team and the wider group. For the first episode, we're letting you listen again to the monthly webinar, Meet the Series. Every month, we meet in the virtual world and introduce you to someone involved in collections, archives and the heritage sector. Our aim is to celebrate all things collections and archives, the diversity and range across the CRC, and to start this new way of shining a spotlight on examples of the fantastic work going on and the incredible people that are involved with it. The series won't always introduce a CRC staff member either. It may be a volunteer, a society at the university, or a guest speaker from outside industry. In this episode, we meet the CRC's digital archivist, Sarah Thompson. This is a reminder that you can attend our webinars yourself, gaining access to more material live and the ability to ask questions on the day. But for now, meet Sarah, who discusses her pathway towards becoming the digital archivist at the CRC. So without further ado, hello, Sarah. Uh, thank hello, you really much for doing this. How are you doing? Course, thank you for having me. It's a, a lovely way to spend a lunch hour. It is indeed. Indeed. I'm very excited. Well, where are you from, Sarah? Uh, well, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, um, which has made a little bit of a splash in the news in the recent uh, US presidential election, because for the first time in sort of 20 odd years, uh, we were a swing state, which was quite exciting. Uh, but I moved uh, to Edinburgh in 2010 to do a master's degree um, in English literature. So my background is in the, in the humanities and not particularly digital. <laughs> and I've lived in Glasgow and now I'm in Falkirk. Uh, so I've lived in Scotland for about 10 years. Lovely, fantastic. We've got political at the very start. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's just trying to like throw it out there, not, let, not like push any opinions, just a fact. <laughs> We're a swing state, super exciting. It was, it was a very interesting thing. I think I spent far too, far too much time here watching the 24 hour news cycle. I know it was intense because of the delay getting the results from mail-in ballots is just what normally happens uh, sort of over a very long night. It was just still going on three days later. So it's finally just like, I can't, it's too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I was wondering before we go into the CRC stuff, what was the first job that you ever had? Well, first job, uh, I think sort of the first proper job was, was at a library. So when I uh, was an undergraduate, uh, which I did back home in Georgia, at the University of Georgia, uh, I worked at the circulation desk in access services. So I physically checked books out to people, like put the stamp in. And so it wasn't long after that where libraries, university libraries started to adopt the machines to do that, where you just stick it under the scanner yourself and it checks it out to you. So it felt very much like being replaced by a machine. I guess that's like, can't beat them, join them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so my first job was at the University of Georgia Library and I, I did that throughout undergrad and absolutely loved it, getting to spend sort of shifts just with books. Yeah, nice. Well, I was kind of hoping that you would be able to give some more information about the kind of pathway to your current role. 
so was this something that you were aiming towards or kind of fell into but I guess if you started in English Lit and, and libraries you're sort of on the on the edges but something a little bit different initially. Yeah I think I've sort of been around the fringes I'm not sure you know at 18 getting my first job but the university library would have imagined ever being a digital archivist and doing something digital I just didn't see see myself that way um, I think it was just much later well, even as an undergraduate, but my senior year, I did a project sort of looking at how digital platforms, blog platforms, things like that had started to sort of push definitions of literature and push our ideas about what it means to create literature. And I think I just really loved, you know, maybe not just computers, but the internet and how that allowed, you know, anybody with an internet connection and a text editor to create something and share it and find it and enjoy it. So I think that's sort of where that transition happened. But yeah, so I finished my undergrad in English Lit and then moved to Edinburgh to do my master's uh, kind of thinking. To be completely honest, at 22, I was just so excited to move to Edinburgh and like to do this a master's in literature and modernity at the University of Edinburgh that I'm not sure I had a super detailed plan for what would happen after that. But I think I just kind of decided was more important than this PhD route. And I think I was a bit discouraged because uh, sort of friends that I, I had and, and people that I had studied and sort of graduated ahead of me and gone that path. I think looking at the reality of it, it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be sort of take up a, a particular postdoc or something, I think I got a bit disenchanted. So I, I'd, you know, worked in a library as an undergrad and just loved it. And I'd actually done an internship at a, an academic publishing press as well. Um, so I did kind of have that crossroads moment where I was like, well, I'm not doing the PhD, you know, what, where do I want to go next? And I just think it felt obvious just to, to be in libraries and to work with researchers to work in the heritage sector. So potentially equally as challenging as going the PhD route, but I think it just sort of actually when I thought about what I wanted and what I wanted um, my daily life to be like and the types of things that I would actually be doing, a uh, library job just made more sense. Um, so that's when I did a second master's, as I tell people, I'm just collecting master's degrees. <laughs> uh, at the University of Glasgow, uh, the information management and preservation um, course and I think there's at least one other uh, person on that course on, on this call. So while I was doing that course um, I did quite a traditional placement at the Shetland Archive um, just working with physical old-fashioned paper stuff uh, and cataloging some of those uh, for their online catalog and then as part of my dissertation for that course I um, got quite lucky and ended up doing a placement with the National Library of Scotland with their digital preservation uh, officer who is under, he was actually quite new, it was a new role. Uh, NLS had never had a digital preservation uh, person before and he was just sort of getting started out and had some projects um, that he could use some help with. So I think at that point, I kind of knew I wanted to do something with digital archiving. I just didn't know exactly what, uh, but I think that sort of conversation with uh, Lee Hibbert at the National Library of Scotland and um, was the first time I'd ever really heard of digital preservation but I think just the nature of the challenges so the, the thing with that 
placement, we were uh, doing a digital content review. So just basically trying to figure out what all digital stuff the National Library of Scotland had at a very high level, because obviously it's a massive collection. They have a huge amount of stuff. And um, so we got to speak to everybody um, and like all different departments from the digital archivist there, uh, Steve Rigdon to sort of the publications team, um, to the systems librarians, just sort of got, got to talk to everybody. And I think that is one sort of feature about libraries and heritage sector that I like is you get to sort of get a taste of a bunch of different subjects and a bunch of different disciplines. So that that was that was great. And the, the, just the nature of the challenges, I think I felt really moved. You know, there are all these amazing digital um, publications and works being created. Uh, but we don't have really great procedures and uh, systems for looking after them. So I think I just felt very motivated to, to just be part of that sort of solution and, and to start sort of spreading the word about good practice and how to look after digital stuff. And, and it's been a learning curve for me. I would not say I'm an expert in how to look after all digital stuff. Uh, but I think it's just like anything you make a start and, and you do the best that you can. So yeah, yeah so that placement, uh, sort of is how how I made it into digital archiving. Fantastic yeah no well it's fantastic to hear how kind of enthusiastic you are about it but also just it's it's also great to hear sometimes that the pathway isn't clear it wasn't you didn't have a, a plan from the start but nope. you kind of you need a few gut feelings along the way of, of where you're going to go and, and what you actually feel interested in. Yeah, and you can't possibly know about everything from the start. So I think you have to have some experiences to even discover that certain things exist. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always for the better. How long have you been in your current role then, actually, at the CRC? Not very long. So I actually started uh, post-lockdown. So I have only ever been into the CRC. Um, well, sorry, I went a couple of times as a student, but since then, once for my interview and then for a half day just to look at the machines and the different kit that was there because uh, when I started everyone was already working remotely um, back in at the beginning of May. Uh, so it's been an interesting experience really pushing that like how much digital can support remote working and mm -hmm. sort of being thrown into it. So so I've, I've been in this post for um, I guess that's about seven months now. Yeah, yeah. What a funny seven months. Well, I was actually kind of wondering if you would um, be able to tell us more about what the role entails. So mm -hmm. kind of how you would explain what a digital archivist is to someone kind of just imagine that I am still in analog and I, I know nothing. Yeah, so uh, one thing I tell people, particularly if uh, they express having um, not ever really worked with digital collections or digital stuff or have even thought about that, is to not be thrown by the digital part of the job title. I'm still just an archivist. Um, and I'm reminded of this regularly when I am in meetings with developers and computer science techie people. I'm just like, I don't know what that is. I just need you to fix this problem. <laughs> so I've picked up some technical skills along the way and um, some things I never thought I would be doing. So I taught myself or learned uh, how to work with tools in command line that don't have a, a sort of nice uh, user interface um, just on the job in my first job. Um, so before this, I was working for an organization called the Digital Preservation Coalition. So there are all sorts of things that I didn't learn in school. I didn't train for, um, just sort of had to, to learn. Yeah, yay, command line. 
Um, it's great when it works. So yeah, certainly le learned all of that on the job. So in terms of the role here uh, at the CRC, I say here, I'm in Falkirk, at the CRC, uh, it can really change dramatically from day to day, just because especially I think in digital uh, collections, there's such a huge variety and, and diversity of types of content. Uh, but basically, I do what all the other archivists do, but for digital stuff. So I help manage uh, all the different types of digital collections, whether it is digital forms of university records. So like all the court meetings and all the minutes of sort of official governance documents and, and, and things. Um, or whether that's donations from researchers. Um, there's a PhD student who's just moved on who helped run a project called Uncover Ed, looking at the lives uh, and experiences of students uh, from minority backgrounds, from sort of the origins of the university um, through to about the 1800s. Um, and he's just got a huge amount of uh, digital stuff that he's collected along the way, just for, like about the lives of, of those uh, graduates. I work in an advisory role with the arts collections, so there. I actually, when you, one of the questions uh, that's coming later, just one of one of their pieces uh, immediately came to mind because uh, I think the arts collections and museums have some most interesting digital stuff. So, so every day is a challenge, uh, just from um, trying to figure out how on earth to make some of this digital stuff designed to be immediate and ephemeral and to not last forever. How to actually ensure that we can access that um, in the future yeah so that's that's it in a nutshell yeah well off the back of that I guess would you be able to describe a day in the life of Sarah digital archivist the realities of the job I guess you're sort of saying you're working on multiple projects at once yeah it is definitely um sort of moving from project to project uh, and just trying to keep up with everything uh, because, you know, as you, you may imagine, pretty much every sort of discipline and area uh, produces quite a lot of digital stuff. So what did I do today? So yesterday, the, the main tool that we use, it's called Archivematica, uh, and it helps support um, creating a lot of metadata or, or grabbing a bunch of sort of technical information that it extracts from digital stuff to save alongside our actual digital files uh, for digital preservation. And it's a massive tool. It's very complicated. I don't even understand everything that it does. So I've been testing it and it was going really well until yesterday. I was working with our, our cataloging archivist. So just another reminder, I am an archivist. I work with other archivists <laughs> and uh, it just wasn't working. It just wasn't pushing content the way that they through to the storage, the way that it should. Uh, and we just, threw everything at it, tried everything that we could. We're like, oh, well, maybe if we, we change this to this and we try changing this and yeah, trying to do this all going into the really boring technical detail, uh, which isn't important. Uh, we just couldn't get it to work. Uh, so, you know, I just did the, the begging email to our development team to see if they could help. But they were fantastic, got it fixed. It turns out one of the developers had put an old password in for credentials somewhere which made me and uh, Aline uh, Baudin, who's our cataloging uh, archivist, just feel much better. We're like, Phew, it wasn't us. We didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> it was just a technical problem. So it's fantastic this morning, first thing, to run it again, and it worked. I know that sounds silly just to be so excited for a tool to work, but sometimes it's it's the small wins. Uh, but I also had a project meeting with the European Ethnological Regional 
study, I can't remember, it's based, uh, I can't remember exactly what EERC stands for, but it's a fantastic project. Boom, a uh, small interjection here. Sarah is essentially bang on. The EERC stands for European Ethnological Research Centre. It is launched in 2011 and collects primary source material about everyday life and society in Scotland. You can find a list of their publications online and they're currently conducting a regional ethnology project in East Lothian. But back to Sarah. I'm connected to the School of Scottish Studies doing interviews with uh, people from different regions around Scotland. And um, I've been helping on that project make sure all of those digital recordings of the interviews and sort of photos of the interviewees and things are digitally preserved. So talking that, talking through what's happening with that project and um, just listening to the cataloging archivists again talk about uh, that the actual content and really funny things that happened in the interviews. So, so yeah, that's, that's a pretty typical doing some actual technical troubleshooting uh, and then mm-hmm. getting to actually hear about some cool content uh, is a pretty good balance of what most of my days are like. Yes, there's always the troubleshooting of technology. That is very exciting to hear. I'm actually, I'm studying in the Scottish Studies Department, so. Ah, nice. So I was wondering, what would you say are the priorities within your role then? Are you the technical side of things or the management side, public engagement or administration? Yes, (laughs) Um, it would be very (laughs) difficult to say. So I think at the moment it does kind of have that very practical uh, just sit at my desk and get as much content processed as possible so it's safe Um, because none of those other exciting parts of my job can happen if the content isn't there the content disappears or or we forget why it's important or where it comes from so that probably is kind of the priority at the moment Uh, but I'm very much of the school of thought that access and public outreach has to be just as important as actually preserving this stuff because if users don't know that your digital collections are there or they don't know how to find them or they don't know how to use them um, or they don't know how you know your whole access system works or how you might be able to get them then what's the point of saving them just to have have them so i think uh, moving forward those are pretty equal it took kind of a while to get this Archivematica tool set up priorities. Uh, but I also think part of my job has become a little bit of digital literacy. So how to look after your own digital stuff uh, because everybody has digital stuff. You have photos, you have, you know, sort of boring stuff. You've got all your like, you know, emails or letters or things from your bank and or about tax and like all those things are important that you need to keep that are in digital form. Um, So I have given a few talks on personal digital archiving because ultimately my job is a lot easier if people have been doing good management of their own digital stuff Mm. um, and and have been taking steps to look after it during their lifetimes before it comes to the archive. So I'd say that's pretty important as well. Mm, Yeah, as more and more places and people go paperless, it becomes a bigger and bigger thing. Do you have a large group of colleagues? I feel like um, the entire library and university collections are my colleagues, um, not to mention the digital preservation community as a whole is itself uh, 
very supportive and very active as well. So I feel like there's never a shortage of people to go to uh, for, for help. But I am situated on the archive team in Special Collections. So I think there are 13 or 14 of us. So I, I think that's, I feel like that's my primary team. That's probably who I work with the most and who I, who I go to most often um, for, for help or, or to ask questions. But I also work with the development team who sit in the digital library um, who sort of look after all of our different digital systems to allow us to access content and you know all the different digital services that we have. Um, so I work with them a lot uh, and sometimes I even understand what they're saying. Um, also, like I said, the, the sort of arts collections people, the research data management team, it's amazing. One of my favorite parts of my job when I actually get to speak to a researcher themselves who's got a question about how to look after some of their stuff or a researcher who wants to access some kind of digital stuff. Um, those are the best days. Um, I think people are still a little unsure about how to even know to come to the archive for digital collections. So that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but when it does, it's awesome. So I'd say, yeah, especially my last job at the Digital Preservation Coalition, there were only 10 people who worked there, felt quite small. So to come to the University of Edinburgh, I definitely feel like I suddenly have this huge sort of community of, of colleagues and people I work with. Nice, nice. I feel like you've kind of touched on it a little bit already, but I was wondering if you feel whether there are some misconceptions surrounding your role, maybe to the public, but perhaps your colleagues as well. Yeah, I think especially non-heritage sector people, like for instance, every time I fly home to the States and come back and have to go through immigration and I have to go through the whole thing and they want to know what I do and I'm like I'm a digital archivist and they just sort of go okay they just could see they don't have any idea what what I'm talking about um I know I said this at the beginning but for people kind of in in the industry I'd say not to get hung up on that digital thing I'd say there are some digital archivists who I've met who do have sort of a techie background but that's unusual most of us are trained archivists and we're archivists at heart and that's how we think and that's how we work and I, I think that's sort of and the most helpful sort of skill set and experience that I have is archiving, not in the technical stuff. I think the trying to apply some of those principles are what really make digital archiving successful, like going back to first principles and arranging things and making sure you have context and making sure you understand who your users are and what kind of information they need to access things. But in terms of my actual work, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I face every day, even from experienced librarians and archivists, uh, is that what I do in digital preservation and digital archiving is not just storage. I am not just sticking stuff like on some server somewhere and leaving it there. It involves all sorts of skills from you know, doing risk analysis of understanding what types of risks there are to content, um, it's about sort of researching and understanding how technology is evolving, what sort of new formats and cool devices are emerging so that we can anticipate that because eventually that content will start to come to the archive and we have to be ready for it. So, I mean, the storage bit, not that it's easy, um, the development team would just be in a rage if they heard me say that, but um, it's definitely the straightforward part. I think understanding the people who create digital stuff understanding the digital things they've created, 
and understanding how users want to use those digital things, whether they want to just access it to, you know, read something and learn something or whether it's something they want to use to create something new. Like that is the tricky bit and probably a bigger part of my of my job. Mm. Yeah, well, not everyone would kind of associate digital materials with a need to store and preserve immediately just because it, everyone's stereotypical view is that it's so new and, and accessible at the click of a button kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think so that until you try and open a file and you don't have any software to open it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you try to go to a website and you get a 404 or just, yeah, digital stuff is actually far more fragile than paper. One archiving initiative that I absolutely love uh, is this group in the States that archive politicians deleted tweets. Um, and I think that's actually really relevant. So if you don't capture those now, they're, you know, they're gone, you're never going to be able to retrieve that. And that's really one way you hold politicians to account and have this record of major decisions or sort of how politicians, what they aligned themselves with or what they had to say. So we don't quite have the same luxury of, of waiting a hundred years to, to archive something. We need to do it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Would you be able to tell us about a project that you were proud of or perhaps a favorite object in the collection or something like that that you think the audience would like to hear about? Um, yeah, so I had a bit of a think about that. Um, I think I thought about it. So I've obviously just been in, in the post for about seven months. Most of the collection items that I've worked with um, haven't even really been made available to the public yet or, or publicized because they're still sort of being processed. Um, but just projects I've been really excited about. Um, when I first started my um, last job, so I just finished that placement in the National Library of Scotland and I started my very first job, a uh, proper job in, in digital preservation and digital archiving. I was brought on to do a project, um, writing a doing some research and writing a report on preserving social media. So I didn't start with easy stuff. I didn't start with like, you know, text documents or, or even like audiovisual material, but straight into something hugely complex in terms of how platforms actually work um, what type of content you actually get um, to all of the different sort of personal data and rights issues as well. Uh, but I loved it. And I think it harks back to that. One of the things I love about um, the capability of digital technology is this sort of openness and this sort of democratic uh, sort of these platforms that allow um, these communities to form and to share information and to sort of promote all the amazing things that they're doing. And I, and I think um, I felt, again, very motivated um, that those are, are the events and things and creations that we see on social media. You know, not all of them, but many of them are very important that I think is really propelled by and sustained by communities that form on Twitter or that form on Facebook where information can be disseminated quickly and um, maybe issues that aren't covered widely by traditional media can really be uh, covered in social media. And I think we should be capturing those things. Um, so I've had a real privilege of working with different organizations, really spearheading the development of tools and procedures for capturing social media 
uh, and preserving it. Uh, and there are a lot of limitations because social media platforms sell data, sell personal data for profit, mainly to big corporations for consumer analysis. So researchers and archivists don't have that kind of money to shell out to buy this data. So it's also in and of itself, this activism to try and, and push social media platforms and governments to, you know, apply legislation to make it more possible for heritage institutions to preserve valuable uh, sort of records that just happen to occur on social media and have done a few training sessions on how to use uh, web archiving tools that anybody can use. And I, I still, so if you've created a blog or a website and you want to make sure that you can access that and, and uh, keep track of it, even if say WordPress decides they're going to charge you a huge amount of money to keep it or platform goes down you still you still have a copy of it so yeah if you've never heard of web archiving or or, or have thought about how you need to or that you might want to look after content on social media and um, that's definitely something that I'm really interested in so uh, I just wanted to show an example of a type of social media thing that we might want to preserve so it's artist is Shona McNaughton and the name of the work is here to deliver it's, um, it's an artwork sort of a performance piece that's been commissioned uh, by the arts collection team here at the University of Edinburgh and it's got mo multiple components so one of the main things that the artist did um, was she uh, drove around in her car uh, and different people members of the public mem members of the university community could call her and they would have just this conversation while she's driving around Edinburgh and passing certain landmarks so this Instagram account is part of the artwork. It's not just promotional material. It's not just marketing or trying to get the word out there. It, it is an essential part of the artwork. I love artists' Instagram accounts. Uh, they're just beautiful. They're so coordinated and interesting. So one of the tools that I have sort of done these training sessions on is designed to capture stuff like this, the kind of web content that all of us or, or a lot of us create and use. So the next time you see an Instagram account, hopefully you'll think about it differently and be like, oh, is this an important record that will one day become important to history? And this is um, a University of Edinburgh collection item that will hopefully in archived form be available in our collections in the future. And I hope the arts collection team doesn't mind me sharing this before we've actually captured it. Yeah, so that's just something, I think this is web content is just something I really enjoy uh, working on. Yeah, very exciting. And it's nice to see something so current or the smaller day-to-day -day things rather than, I think a lot of collections and archives are used to promoting their, their big massive pieces, the, you know, the oldest thing or, or um, very expensive pieces, that kind of thing, but, but the little day-to-day -day things. Yeah. As well. and, and the past is getting shorter and shorter. So I think, Things that were created, say, in the 1600s and that we still have today is absolutely amazing, obviously. And also keeping in mind that we probably have lost information about those objects. We don't know everything about them. Digital stuff, you know, nowadays things move so quickly. Has your work changed this year as a result of COVID-19? 
Yeah, I would say it's hard to compare because I've only ever been in this role um, since lockdown. True. But I think just from um, sort of a broader perspective, everyone working remotely and socializing remotely, I think has made people think about the digital things that they create a little bit differently. Um, so kind of, as you just said, like not everybody thinks about digital stuff as something that needs to be preserved. I think that's absolutely true. People think of the official record or important documents still in a very analog way. Uh, but when you're working primarily digital, I think you start to appreciate that the digital thing is, is important. So I think that it has in some instances, I, I feel anyway, I have no evidence to back this up, that the argument I have to make for, you know, trying to get people to change how they work or to, to think about uh, transferring things to a digital archive, like digital things to, a, to an archive is a bit easier. And then more people have started to appreciate um, that primary importance of digital, that it's not just a means of communicating or just, oh, these are just my working documents. Like it is actually really valuable content. It just happens to be digital. This is all fascinating. Thank you so much. There's just so much to get into, but I'm aware that kind of in terms of time, I want the audience to have some time to get their questions in as well. So I thought for now we could move on to the quick fire round and then maybe perhaps return to some things or indeed um, the audience may return us to some things that have been brought up already. The question is, are you ready, Sarah, for these very difficult, silly questions? I'm ready. <laughs> that is fantastic to hear. Okay. What was the last book you read? Oh, I can't remember the title, but it's Anthony Bourdain's uh, autobiography, just sort of about how he got into food. So I don't know if you've heard of Anthony Bourdain, but he was a huge figure in the American sort of foodie scene and sort of started the travel food uh, television type uh, sort of thing. Nice. Um, nice choice. Do you have a favourite takeaway place in Edinburgh? Oh, in Edinburgh. Oh, it's been so long since I lived there. I can't remember if I said I guess, that. I, moved I guess from... check Falkirk if you want. Um, <laughs> I only lived here in lockdown as well. Oh, who knew that I'd fall over on a food? Uh, quick fire question. Can I give you a Glasgow one? Just because I was sort of most recently living there in the real world where you could eat things and go interesting. Indeed, places. indeed. I'm sure some um, people are tuning in from Glasgow. Um, there's a great place called uh, Julie's Capidium, um, which does... does um, sort of Southeast Asian uh, food so that was just absolutely amazing and it was basically just this, uh, this girl and her mom in the kitchen um, and their food is absolutely fantastic and I think um, Asian style cooking is something I'm just not very good at so this tend to be my favorite favorite takeaways. Nice maybe we could put the, the name written in the chat if anyone is from Glasgow and wants to wants to check it out. South side of Glasgow. <laughs> Do you prefer reading a, a real physical book or an ebook? physical book don't tell anyone I hate ebooks <laughs> I can't read them old school <laughs> not quite a digital girl at heart always now everyone's like uh, don't you hate going on holiday and just like packing all those books like wouldn't you rather just have them all on like a thing and I'm like no I'll make space it's fine I'm just having my paperbacks or whatever what was the last tv show you watched um we are currently watching the newest 
series of Taskmaster. Um, but because you know you have to wait a whole week for the next one, we've also started back at season one and are rewatching all of the old ones. They're just fantastic. Nice. I am actually doing the same thing at the moment. Nice. Laura and I in the planning session last week, we had bet um on what you would pick for this. And I went for the Queen's Gambit and Laura went for the Crown, so we were both wrong. But very nice. I just finished, I just finished the crown though last week uh, and I've started the Queen's Gambit. So that is those are excellent guesses. <laughs> I think everyone's staying the same, everyone's going to do the same recommendations list in lockdown at the moment. Have you ever had late finds from my library book? Oh yeah, absolutely. But I've always <laughs> paid them and I've, I've never kept a library book. I've returned every library book I've ever checked out. <laughs> from uh, so it can't be helped. It can't be helped. <laughs> Would you say you're a city dweller or a country bumpkin? Uh, I'm a city person, I think, for sure. I like having my nice restaurants and the theatre and, and bars and pubs and being able to see lots of people. I like a little sort of holiday in, in the country occasionally, but I'm definitely a city person. Nice, nice. Do you have a best exhibition that you've been to, perhaps from a museum or a gallery or something? Oh, gosh. Back in the olden days when we actually got to go to museums and galleries, so I, I did some work with with the Tate, Tate Britain, and they've got a, a time-based media conservation team and they work with all sorts of weird and wonderful installation art. Uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but they had a piece. It was really creepy actually. So it was this scaffolding and this puppet that was sort of attached to the scaffolding that had its eyes were these uh, sensors that could detect where people were in the room and would follow you. And it was just this creepy puppet just like following you around the room. Yeah, there's a really cool exhibition again at Tate. Can you tell I like my, my digital stuff? Uh, but there was a, it was an installation work again and it was just like a pile of pennies, I think, um, and an actual person, like they hired an actor to sit and like answer um, the questions of the people coming to view view the installation. And then a camera was on you and you could see a screen behind of you standing there asking the questions. But I think anytime I see those installation works, all I'm thinking of is I'm like, all oh, right, so how are they preserving the software that accompanies this? And how are they keeping the hardware or are they just videoing this and then keeping a record of what it looked like when it was live? And I think I'm just, you know, at work. But yeah, Tate has some really good exhibitions of some of this weird and wonderful digital uh, artworks, um, if you're interested. But it looks like Edinburgh will will have some some interesting ones as well soon. So. Mm, nice, nice, fantastic. Okay, you have successfully survived the quickfire round of questions. <laughs> Congratulations. They made it so poorly at the food one. Ugh. <laughs> You'll have five come to you as soon as we finish. But now, um, Let's open the floor to any questions that the audience may have. Laura, you might know better at the moment whether you've been emailed any or whether there's some in the chat box now. Yeah, sure. We've got uh, quite a few in the chat box. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Sarah and Lily, for that, that fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm going to dive straight into the questions to see if we can get through as many of them uh, as possible. So the first question is from Heather and she asks, what platforms do you use for storage and access with Archivematica? Uh, right, so straight to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we are Archivematica. So it's configured to just pull content from our from our shared storage. 
um, so from network storage. And once it's processed through Archivematica, um, our developer on Archivematica calls it the conveyor belt. Um, so content sort of goes on this conveyor belt through Archivematica. And then we use a DSpace repository for um, one of our digital preservation copies. And so our, our digital preservation plan is we keep three copies of everything. One on, on DSpace, which is a bit more accessible, and then two copies, uh, one each on a different uh, tape store. And we use the Tivoli management system uh, by IBM. Um, so that's you know a bit slower. It takes longer to write um, digital information to tape, um, but it's really secure once, once it's written to tape. That was super technical. Yeah, great. Thank you. That was, we were just testing you, Sarah, to see if you really know your stuff or not. The next question is from Peter. He asks, do you use any facial recognition software for old photos? That is not part of our digital archiving uh, workflow. I, I can see where there might be a potential use for that in the future. We probably would not uh, be processing something um, that we didn't already have the information about who, who was in the photos. If we did have photos with people's faces in them and they were strangers, that could potentially be problematic and we wouldn't, mm. it would sort of make it worse to know who they were just because of personal data issues. Um, but I can certainly see, especially for content that we hold, we actually don't maybe necessarily have so much information about the provenance that it could be really useful. But so far, I've not used any facial recognition software. Okay, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, question. I think. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, you haven't been asked that one before. Like, Can uh, I just like get this new, a new toy, a new digital preservation, uh, facial recognition sort of setup? Anyway. Yeah, maybe. Okay, question from Edward, uh, or sorry, Edmund. You spoke mostly about working with digital formats. But do you ever come in contact with the digitization side of older documents? Yes. So I'm not responsible for any digitization. So Edinburgh is lucky enough to have their own digitization unit. And for one of these sort of lunchtime chats, you should you should definitely get someone from the digitization team in to come talk to you. They're, they're kind of the cool kids and <laughs> photographers and videographers and things for digitizing. Um, old stuff, but I am currently working on a project on how to automate the process of digitally preserving um, that content. So I'm of the view that there's really no difference between digitized content and born digital. Once it's digital, it's digital. In some ways, digitized content is a bit simpler, especially since you have the opportunity when you create it to think about good practice and steps you can take to make it easier to digitally preserve. So I, I am sort of involved in, in the thought process about how to preserve digitized images, but I um, am not cool enough to actually do the digitizing myself. I think you're cool enough, Sarah. I think you could, oh, you could belong to your team, their team, <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, we do have a few more questions, but I'm aware that we're um, kind of running short of time. So Sarah, would it be okay with you if I emailed you the questions um, yeah. that we still have remaining? And then I can, um, everyone who signed up to the Eventbrite page, I can send you out Sarah's answers. Does that sound okay with, with everyone? I, I shall pass back over to Lily to do our final wrapping up of the session. Yeah, I guess the only thing left for me to say is 
on behalf of myself and Anwar and everyone, thank you so much. Uh, you have been a fantastic and willing guinea pig for the start of this series. <laughs> And we hope you uh, join as an audience member for future ones. And just thanks for your care and consideration and enthusiasm. Those all such fantastic answers and thoughtful stuff. So yeah, I believe on Zoom, we can provide a little virtual social distance round of applause with our reactions. That that was the digital archivist and you've officially been met, Sarah. Great, thanks <laughs> for just having me. Thank everyone else as well for attending just at this year end. Like I said, we're delighted by how many people joined us and it was just excellent to see. So I hope you guys join after the new year as well. And just a reminder that uh, we have plenty of things coming up with the CRC that the fantastic group of communication engagement volunteers are working on at the moment. I believe the link went out for the newsletter if you guys want to sign up and just have a great Christmas and a well-deserved break, everyone. Yeah, stay safe and thank you again, Sarah. Of course. Thank, Thank you, you Sarah. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to We've Got History. This is an episode of Meet the Series from the CRC. The live event took place on December 10th, 2020. Thanks to Laura Beattie and the team of volunteers behind Voice. Catherine Alexander, Connor Wimblett, Daisy Collins, Evie Stevenson, Lily Mellon, Martha Brownhill and Tessa Rodriguez. This episode was hosted by Lily Mellon. The digital archivist was Sarah Thompson. Episode edited by Lily Mellon. Social media by Tessa Rodriguez. Cover art by Louisa Grieve, musical stings by Chris Murdoch. Please stay tuned over the coming months for more additions to We've Got History Between Us. You can attend our Meet the Series in person and ask questions on the day. Thank you for downloading this podcast. <laughs>